1: Another Monday, another edition of the helipod, and I am with my friend Nate Burleson. Have not seen him in person in what feels like months. You know him from Good Morning Football. You know him from The NFL Today on CBS, uh, from Extra. If you're a fan of Rachel Ray, you've probably seen him guest hosting on it. The dude's everywhere. We'll, we'll get into all that in just a minute. And uh, I, I just, I love talking to you, I love being on with you, Nate. Um, This has been such a – this has been an interesting, weird, emotional time. We go from, you know, coronavirus and everybody's scared about the future and this sickness that has overtaken America to now the the death of George Floyd and the memorial was just a couple of days ago. And we're all just kind of – it's a feeling out process, I feel like. And um, you you made uh, a really – um kind of measured thoughtful statement in regards to <clears throat> excuse me the drew Brees controversy, and it was about your grandfather um, who died at the hands of the police and i, I thought that well first of all you you're a wordsmith and you always have a way with words, but I appreciated it because there wasn't vitriol behind it there wasn't you know there there may have been anger there but I just I appreciate the way you went about it, as you always do. And I'm wondering, why did you decide to share that story at at that moment?
2: Yeah, uh, first, let me say I appreciate you having me on. Um, You know, Drew Brees, he made a statement on a platform, which I believe was Yahoo Finance. So he was obviously talking about things that weren't pertaining to football. And he got hit with a football question. and, And I believe he was just given a corporate answer. And, and uh, Peter Schrager, who works on Good Morning Football said, you know, he might have been given a corporate answer from 2017, which at the time it would have been like, oh, what side do you stand on? Do you agree with the kneeling during the national anthem or would you rather it be done somewhere else? Um, and I think that was his stock answer. And I just saw I saw the responses. Right. I saw people calling him out. saw hashtag cancel Drew and and, um, and and people calling him a racist. And this is what I initially thought. I initially thought, man, Drew Brees ain't a racist. Like, I met Drew on plenty of occasions, on and off the field. I played against him. I know people that have played with him. Um, I know what he means to that city. I know what he means to the, the league. I know what he means to white people and black people and every color in between. So I, the reason I bring that up is because I, I kind of craft how I'm gonna approach certain topics by how I feel genuinely before I say something. And if I would have just rolled the wave, which is what a lot of people do, they go on social media and like, what is everybody saying? I'm gonna say that. Then I would have just been like, man, F Drew Brees. He's a bum, cancel this dude. I can't believe he would say that. As disappointed as I was that he didn't address like the very fundamental thing that Kaepernick was addressing, which was equality and police brutality and systematic oppression and injustices, I wasn't ready to just write him off. So that was my lead in to figuring out how I was gonna talk about it. Once we got on the show, I thought, how can I address Drew Brees without saying what everybody else has said? Because it happened the day before and we're a morning show and I don't like repeating other people. And at that moment, I was like, all right, how can I talk to Drew and people that think like Drew? in a way that they don't feel attacked, in a way that doesn't make them feel so uncomfortable that they immediately tune me out. And I just thought about the story of my grandfather, a a guy that I never met um, and how he also was in the service. And uh, it's kind of like that compliment sandwich that I learned about when I was a kid. You know, you you say something nice, you put in like the the meat of what you want to get across and then you follow it up by saying something else. And that's what I did. I started off and said, look, I was disappointed that, that Drew is accurate as he is. He was a little off on this, but here's my compliment. I hear you and I agree with you when it comes to your, your sentiment about how you feel about your grandfathers and, and their service and it makes you cry and tear up. And I said, Drew, I feel that. And that's me right there talking to Drew, talk, talking to every white person, every black person, every Latino, every Asian, every person that has somebody in the service I agree with him. So now I got you, like I wanted to wrap you in. And then I went on to say, but one of those individuals that also served in my family that I have um, appreciated for his commitment to this country, came back on his land in America and was approached by the police while he was walking in Golden Gate Park. And that was his last day on earth. And my father found out that news when he was a junior in high school and went to identify the body at the morgue. And he remembered thinking to himself, why does he have so many knots on his head? And as he was talking to me, we've had this conversation a few times. He said, Nate, I'll never forget that. He was bald-headed. He had so many knots on his head. And I know, I I knew that he got into it with the police, but their explanation didn't match up to what had happened. Right. Um, So that's what I wanted to do. And then I followed it up by saying, Drew, you're not my enemy that narrative that Cap was, was disrespecting this country was false. Like on a very constitutional level, it, 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 it should be allowed. And on a very human level, it's, it's just about people dying in situations that are so avoidable. And it just so happened that Black people seem to be caught on camera more often. Um, and, 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 and then at the very end, I was like, so just zoom out and see life from a different perspective. That's all I'm asking you and people that might have that view on Kaepernick, him kneeling or police brutality, because there is like there's people that rationalize. There's people that always want to say, well, what what did that person do? Well, what about black on black crime? Well, well, all police ain't bad. All white people ain't evil. And I'm always like, bro, I never said those things (laughs) like I'm also in the black communities. I talk to people that have been impacted by black on black crime. So you can't throw that back at me. I've never been one to say white people are evil. I've, I've always talked about how I know more good cops, more real life superheroes, and I know bad cops that act like super villains. So that was my approach. And I felt like it, it was it was placed in a way that can be received. And, and as, as adamant or militant I can be, because it's like, I'm black, bro. We're dealing with stuff. If I make you uncomfortable, so be it. As As much as I can be that, I feel like, My platform, um, my platform isn't that. Like when I'm on TV, I have a very diverse group of people that I'm talking to. And I want everybody from a 16-year-old to a 60-year-old to hear me and listen and digest it. I want white people and black people. I I want people that really are on very opposed sides. Like I do know black people that are like, man, cops, all cops are bad. I don't trust none of them. Every time I meet a white person, I just don't trust them. I know people on that extreme. And then I know white people that are like, I just don't get why y'all complaining so much. Like, like you, you weren't in slur- slavery. And like, a- as much as you try to like create a parallel to today's society, I don't believe it. You guys, you guys all are either hoodlums or you guys are ballplayers or rappers. So like, you guys bring this on yourself. And so I know those extremes. What I'm trying to do is take those extremes and bring them together with statements that we all can kind of nod our head and just be like, all right. I didn't see it that way. So that was my approach. And it wasn't it wasn't to attack Drew Brees. Um, and, and, you know, and last thing I'll say about this, my, because I'm such a like, a, am a lover, man. I, I, I'm always trying to see the good in the situation. And I, I really hate confrontation. So when somebody does something bad, I'm always like, well, well, think about it like this. Well, he actually is a nice guy. You shouldn't look at her that way. I wanted to put this cape on and be like, yo, I know Drew. Drew's a good dude. Like, what, like, what's the big deal? Drew after Katrina, like, Drew was in them streets. Right. Drew donated $5 million to feed people during his quarantine. Like, I know black people that love Drew, like he part of the family. I wanted to do that, but like, I remember thinking to myself, that's not my job. Like, as I show up a day after Drew makes a statement, that's not my job. But, I'll Nate, leave it what, up to Drew.
1: To let me that. ask you this too. Were you worried about if you had done that, the pushback you would have received
2: from black players in the NFL? Yeah. And I don't even think it was just black players. I think it would have been black people. I think it would just been black people like, bro, Nate, like who are you putting on a cape for? Like, let him, let him talk. Drew can speak for himself. And, and, and I knew that drew at some point was going to come out and issue an apology and talk to the people. So it literally was a split decision in a commercial break where I was talking out loud and I was talking to Peter Schrager, I'm like, man, I think I just wanna tell people how good of a dude Drew is. And, and Peter was like, bro, that's not really your job. Like, I think people realize that. Right. We're just trying to get Drew to understand that it's okay to address your privilege. And I think a while ago, white privilege would like make people uncomfortable, make white people uncomfortable. And they would think we're saying white racism. They're two completely different things. The reason I can say like, bro, like Drew, it's tone deaf for you to say, I disagree with somebody who takes a knee because it, it it shows that you're not even paying attention to what's going on right now. Like literally like right now, right now. Right. Um, like it, cap taking a knee applies right now, a few weeks ago, a month before that and a month before that, because these deaths has been happening. It seems like every month. And, um, and, and and I think that's where, that's where I can communicate to the masses. And, and when I look at a camera and I say, the reason that black ball players can talk to a white person and say, man, just embrace your white privilege because you have it. Know why they can say that is because black ball players who, who are in the NBA, major league baseball, hockey, NFL, we have pro athlete privilege and they don't want to admit that, but like. I get pulled over by a cop if he recognizes me whether i'm speeding i could be a little tipsy um i, I could i could be weaving in and out of lanes he's like excuse me sir d oh nate hey bros and hey what's up man how you doing hey listen, i'm a big fan bro hey listen that that 2004 season you're on my fantasy team You put up a thousand yards you know where you were a beast hey last week i'm telling you that move you made Uh, Man, I love you. Hey, listen, man. Hey, take care. Slow down a little bit, man, because I can't guarantee that the next guy is going to pull you over is going to let you slide. Hey, thanks, officer. I appreciate that. Or a group of people are out and you're at a club and a cop walks over because he sees some ruckus and he comes over aggressively, but he's disarmed by the fact that he knows you. And he sees you. Right, exactly. There's there's a privilege there. So if I tell my white brother or my white sister, you kind of have this, like, this cloak of a professional athlete a lot where you might get treated just a little bit differently. And and if you embrace that and I say now, take off that for a second and see it from my perspective, that's all black people are saying. And that's not me saying you're racist, it's just saying your life is different than mine. And I, I I feel like I drove home that point and I'll reiterate this because I feel like his, his, his apology has been received. I don't know how well it's accepted. Drew is well, a Well
1: You know, to your point, Nate, it's funny because I'm, I'm watching shows, and this has been – we're in a 24-hour news cycle, as you know. Yep. And this has been a 48-hour issue with Breeze. You know, first, you know, the statement's dissected, and then there's unbelievable backlash on social media. I remember going to bed that night thinking, okay, there's going to be an apology in the morning. Yeah. And then he came out with the written statement. And I'm like, ah, uh, that's kind of weak. I, I want to yeah. see him, I want to hear the words. I want to see his right. face when he's saying it. And then he had a second apology when he came on video. And I, I'm, I'm a Drew Brees fan. I, I, didn't, I didn't love the backlash. I didn't love what he said. And I think what Schrager, the point that he made, that that's kind of a canned statement from when this first happened was a great one because I think that's just kind of the feeling he's had. Like, listen, he could have massaged that in so many different ways. He, I, I've, I've evolved on the issue. And we've had conversations about Kaepernick kneeling. And a, a lot of our analysts, white analysts, black analysts alike said, yeah, I probably wouldn't do that. I'd probably go about it a, a different way. Yep. And I, yep. I, I think now initially when it happened, like, oh man, I'm just, I'm just not, I wish there was a different way. I'm not really down with that. Now I'm like, you know what? I get it. I'll stand for you. And when you're ready to stand, then stand with me. And if you're not, I got you. And because it, it's, it's, you have to do you and I have to do me and we have to accept each. We don't have to, but that's me. I I want to accept my teammates and my friends. Um, So I've evolved on that issue. And we didn't get, I don't know if Breeze has really evolved on it or not, because the reality is he, he had to make a statement. Like it was, he everything had imploded in that locker room. And when your teammates are telling you to shut the fuck up and guys like Malcolm Jenkins, who are smart and great right. players, and you're the leading receiver in the NFL, and Michael Thomas, like he had to say something. And then when he says that, everybody is trying to analyze and dissect whether he really meant it or not. I, I believe that He did. And he's, he's, you know, trying to figure out how to deal with all all those emotions. I mean, the reality is when you take that little piece of what he said, then you go to Twitter and there's in 280 words, people are crushing the dude. How about listen to the whole, the whole interview, right? When he talks about how much he wants to help everything and, and racial equality in this country. And the fact that he has, I don't know if there is, is an athlete ever, that's done more for the city of new Orleans um, th- than Drew Brees. So listen, did he handle it right? Uh, initially? No. Did he, did he, is he trying to make amends? Yes. I, I, I believe so. And it's not, Nate, it's not an easy thing now. He's going to have to go back into that locker room with those guys. Right. And as you know, it, I, the locker room is the most racially diverse workplace in the country and it's unique. It's, it, it is. I, I I, it's, the thing that's interesting to me about the locker room is, is just, you know, I get a visit for a minute when I come in and, you know, with the media and see guys and you have conversations about everything. You, you have conversations about race, but a lot of times the locker room is broken down. The white guys hang out with the white guys, the black guys hang out with the black guys. Right. Yeah. And, that's, and I think a lot of that has to do with, with position groups. Um, but what is this going to, what's this going to be like for Drew? If you're, Michael Thomas, and you're the star receiver on that team, what's that first interaction face-to-face going to be like?
2: You know what? I, I think that because of COVID, maybe it's a blessing in disguise that he had this kind of screw-up underneath us being in this virtual society because he can make phone calls, FaceTime, Zoom calls, and he can have as many conversations as he needs to Before he actually see these guys face to face, that's a good point. So, you know, like getting back to your point, I feel like he made an apology. I'm not going to ask people to forgive. I'll let people do that on their own time. I will say this though: when somebody makes a mistake in our society, weigh what they are and the good that they have done versus their mistake. That's how you determine whether you want to cancel somebody. So in this situation. Drew is literally leaning on his belief on the flag. Like it's, it's sacred to me. It means something different when he took a knee like in, in 2017, that kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Like it did a lot of people, right? But you think about what he has done. So if Drew has been a fixture in the community, black people, white people alike, they all love him. He gives, like he is, he, is, uh, uh, he gives uh, within his philanthropy efforts. So, like, if you take all that and then you take this blunder with, with an apology and another apology, and then him having time to like mend these relationships within his team and his community, like, there's no way you should cancel, cancel Drew Brees. I just feel like in due time, we'll all be like, we just had to get him to understand our perspective. Now, I do feel like it's going to be like this they'll have virtual meetings. Drew's going to talk to his people. He's going to be like, look, my bad. I feel you. I, I was insensitive in the sense that like, I didn't think about cap-taking like, that knee and directly relating it to what's going on. I, I kept thinking military, 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 American, patri- patriotism. Like, That's on me, fellas. I love you. I rock with you. You know my heart. I think when they get in that locker room, it's not going to be awkward like, what's up, Drew? Walk past. It's going to be like, what's up, baby? How you doing, man? You good? How's the family? I honestly believe it's going to be a true embrace because they have already spoke about it and that that that's going to be one of those like lasting moments when they actually do connect. And you're right about the locker room. And I'll say this, dan like when I first started at the NFL Network, we had our own locker room. And I was surprised how similar it was to a real locker room. Like you you walk in as a rookie and there's the vets, the OGs. I remember seeing Dante culpepper and Randy Moss. I was like, "Oh shit. <laughs> there they go." And they had to spin this in 2003. Dudes are spending money recklessly. They got the spinners with the with the furs and, and they got the jewelry. And I'm like, damn, man, these dudes is living the life. And then you got you got the, the offensive lineman. And it's like the country fed white boys is big, big children, right? they chill, or the driving the trucks? Relax. Yeah, yeah. They just chilling. They relaxing. You know what I'm saying? And 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 they're not as like reckless with their money in the sense that like that black people. Like I'm not gonna generalize, but like certain black people will get money, and they're like, "Yo, I'm, I'm gonna get me the fancy car because I never even had anything close to that growing up. I'm gonna go buy me the watch with the diamonds, you know. Um, the 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 offensive linemen, they might go spend their money on stuff that we might not. A big ass farm with with some some horses and and they want some space in the country, so when they're done playing, they can detach from the world, right? So. I, and I saw these little pockets. And then you got the young, diva receivers and the DBs that's constantly bickering at each other like a cat and mouse game. And then you got the kickers who literally be in their own world. Like, they, they're they like the kickers and the quarterbacks who just, just kind of just sit back and chill. Like, they, they spend half the practice in the training room, reading books, playing Scrabble and board games. And I'm like, yo, this is crazy. This is like the biggest <laughs> high school lunchroom in the world. Yeah. And then... I, I signed at the NFL Network, and I walked in, and I'm like, oh, snaps! that's Deion Sanders. That's Michael Irvin. Oh, that's Marshall Falk, you know what I'm saying? Oh, snap. And then I look over at you, and I'm like, oh, it's like, that's like the kickers over there. Okay, there's okay." <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Why do I have you to be a kicker, dude? That's bullshit. I know. I know. I know that. That was, that was, that was, that was, that was a low blow. He's like the kicker slash quarterback. You know, the there kicker that can throw you like I'm the athletic better. kicker. Um, but like, so, but now it was it was funny because you see all these people from different backgrounds and we would close that door before or after a show and we would talk about things. And I love that about the NFL Network, especially in the early days. And yeah. and since we're on the topic, I got to say this, um, because we started off talking about what's going on in society. Dan Helley, for everybody that's listening and watching, Dan Helley, when I first came in, was one of those individuals that um, I saw the direct reflection of myself. So, like, the way he talked to people, the way people talked about him when he wasn't in the room, um, always looking at life through a very optimistic lens, um, not being biased towards people, um, willing to help even when he has a lot on his plate. And, and you know, I'm joking about you looking like a kicker. To me, you guys were all, like, the vets on the team. So I, I didn't have a separation between you and and Dion and Rich Eisen and Michael, you guys were all like superstars to me. Like I had this like great appreciation because I have watched you, I appreciated your work and I just wanted to learn from you. And, and to, to keep it all the way real, you being a host, I was always paying more attention to you and how to be um, a media personality more so than I was paying attention to the guys that played ball they had a certain way of delivering their message. Like they can get up there and break down a play. They can control a segment. They can take over a whole show and only be on there for five minutes. That's their gift. That's the gift of being a football player. But to be the common thread throughout a show, I was watching you, watching how you wrote, how you scripted, how you read the prompter, your body language, how casual you are. How you never really panicked. Like you always had your hands in the perfect place. And like being able to soak up that All the while, while you're giving me advice and me asking you questions and you just dropping gems on me, I've always appreciated that. And I know that I tell you that when I see you, but like that was a moment in time where I can honestly look back and Dan, I got to keep it real with you, bro. I don't know if I am where I am now if you weren't one of the first people that I developed a relationship at the NFL network because everybody else is really busy with their lives. It's not like the guys. They didn't take me under their wing, but Dion at that time couldn't teach me how to be a host. He could teach me how to entertain on TV and talk about the game in a way that's digestible. Um, you know, Michael Irvin could tell me how to project my voice and talk with passion. So people felt like they were in the huddle when you were talking. Right. Marshall Falk taught me how to be very articulate and be precise, like when you're talking about something and be very measured. So when you do say something, you snap it off and they get your point but they weren't hosting at that point. So like having you there, I can tie in all of these things and then learn from the guy that's actually running the show. So, um, I'm thankful for that, man, because, uh, like you're always at the top of my list, like literally the number one spot of guys that I watch and I'll always have a deep appreciation for. It.
1: Well, I appreciate that, man. And it was funny. Cause I, I remember talking to you, you know, early on in the process and, you've always kind of wanted to to host, to be the point guard, to be setting things up. And that was different. I, I had never worked with an athlete who had those goals. And I think you are the most different guy that I work with because of that, because you've always wanted to do more and you've, you've worked for it. Like, that's the thing that's so crazy, man. Like, when you first got out of the league and we're going to get into your playing career in a minute, but I, I, I want to kind of flip it because to me, your, your career is so fascinating. W- you got out of the league and you came right over to LA with us. You're living in Seattle. Um, you work with us for a couple of years on, on total access and you were a sponge, man. You were always, you were always learning and asking questions. Um, but you didn't just want to be like another, another voice. You just didn't want to right. do three segments you know, on the show every day and get, you know, 90 seconds to talk about, you know, why Eli Manning threw four interceptions and he's still the starting quarterback, you know, for the Giants, you want it more. And that's why you've told this story before, but that's why when I found out they were starting a morning show, moving it to New York and that they were going to talk to you. I don't know if you remember that in the locker room. And I'm like, Nate, they're going to call you about this show. And you had just moved to Scottsdale from Seattle right? Yeah. Your wife's family's there, yeah. and your life was, was kind of easy at that point, right? You yeah. flew in for a couple of days, and it's the best get going, okay? For former players, you can live in Miami, you can live in Jersey, you can live you know, in Oklahoma, yeah. but they fly in first class, you get car service, you come do the show. Not a ton of heavy lifting, like certain days are different right. than others, but your life was pretty good. And I'm like, listen, dude, the show's going to be in New York, the NFL offices are in New York.
2: Wait, 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 let me, let, let me pick it up here, because I do remember, oh, this. I go, remember go. this vividly. Um, you're right, I, I fell into this place where I was like, man, I'm finally comfortable. Like, this is the good retired life. Imagine living in Scottsdale, flying into LA, picking any one of the five-star hotels, car service. Like, life is good. And I remember getting, getting done with the show, and Dan's in there like, like a true OG. This is why I call it the locker room. Um, it's kind of like, it's kind of like when Lawrence Taylor was talking to Jamie Foxx in any given Sunday in the sauna. Like it's like a, it's like when it, when a young dude is listening to an OG and you know what he's saying, something you're gonna have to remember. Um, and you're in there, and you're chilling, and we're just getting undressed. For those that don't know what it's like, like you have a suit on, it's just like you think it is. You know what I'm saying? You take your tie off, and Dan's like, "Hey yo, Nate, what's up? How you doing? I'm Like I'm good." And you're like, yeah, so, um, hey, listen, man. So I heard uh, there's uh, this morning show that they're going to do. You know, we've had different, different uh, versions of the morning show here on the network. And I'm like, yeah, okay. And I'm just staring at him like, what is Dan talking about? As he's just casually getting addressed, And he's like, I feel like they're going to approach you. And I'm like, where are you getting this from? And like a true OG, just kind of like, I know things. You know, I was <laughs> like, I know things. And I was like, so, so what are you saying? He's like. Listen, it's a very unique opportunity. You you can be a guy that can tell us how great Odell's catch is, or you know how the the four three defense is better than three four. You can do that forever. Now, you can literally do that for twenty years, but hosting a show is different. And if they approach you, I think you should really consider that. And uh, but I heard I heard it's, it's going to be in New York, and it's, it's going to be a, a, a change for anybody that takes a job, but. Um, I I do believe they're gonna approach you. And this wasn't like a day before I got a phone call. This was months before it even really landed on my lap. And for me, it was always crazy because I tell the story, I'm like, I don't know where Dan got the information from, but I'm always appreciative because when I was talking with my wife a few months later, when I did get the call and I'm sitting there and it's Michael Davies with this British accent and he's just asking me if I would consider this job and I remember talking to the wife and she's like, it was kind of like getting a call on draft day in a weird sense. And she's like, who's that? I'm like, it's good morning football. And he's talking to me and I hang up and I'm like, so they want me to take this job, it's in New York and we're gonna have to move it's early in the morning. Um, they're not paying me that much more, but if the show is good, they'll pay me more and then I have more opportunities because I'm hosting and it's in New York. I could spin off that and and do other things. And she was like, we were one of those families where, thankfully, I took care of my money. So I didn't necessarily have to work for cash. And she was like, well, you don't necessarily need the money. uh, And you don't need this opportunity. Like, we're good. We're comfortable. And at that point, she had and I had kind of talked myself out of it. And I walked into a bathroom upstairs. And I'm just sitting there. I didn't have to use it. And I'm looking in the mirror and I'm like, damn, I remember Dan telling me like this is a good opportunity. And and I was thinking to myself, they might not come around too often, especially for former ballplayers, especially guys who didn't win a Super Bowl, especially for guys who don't have a Hall of Fame jacket. And I left that bathroom and I told myself I have to take the job. And I didn't tell my wife, but I knew in that moment I had to take it. And the seed was, that conversation we had in that locker room when you kind of gave me that advice. And I know, I know exactly now that I've been in the business for so long, six years going on seven, like I know what you were saying. You were like, look, it's one hell of a commitment. And morning shows are like restaurants. The failure rate is high. But if you succeed, it can open things up for you that you won't get just being another football player talking about football on the football network. And I've always, I've always been, been grateful for that advice.
1: Well, I mean, it, literally, you could not have scripted it any better. It's like every time I see something new with Nate, like I, you know, we talk occasionally and text back and forth, and and you know, and, yeah. I'll, and I'll see your Instagram stuff, and it's Rachel Ray, and at first it was extra, right? At first it was NFL Today, like the yep. C a a Sunday morning show that used yeah. to be when I was young. That was that was the pinnacle for me. That was you know, it. It was one of the goals. I said, man, if I could ever host a an NFL morning show, so there are. There's CBS, there's yep. Fox, there's yep. ESPN, there's NFL Network. There's four of those shows. Let's just say there's four guys on each show. So there's 16 jobs. That's it. I mean, that's that, And And you, you were able to get that CBS job due in part to the fact that you were in that building, due in yeah. part to the fact you're in New York with Good Morning Football, yep. and then you, you, know, you spin off and you're doing extra. What do you – listen, nobody does, nobody does a morning show forever, and right. I, our friends at NFL network would hope that all of you guys, cause it's such great chemistry. Hey, we're going to do it forever, but that's not reality. Right. Right. What does Nate Burleson want to be? And I actually kind of hate when people ask me this question because I'm like, man, I don't ask my buddy in commercial real estate. What he's going to be doing in five years. <laughs> right. Right. But listen, We're in the same world. Right. Right. Like, so five years from now, what's the goal? Like, what do you want to be doing?
2: You know, I've, I've thought about that and it's changed over the years. Um, after I got the NFL today job, you know, I thought to myself, man, this is the Tiffany network. And this is a, a, a fixture in Sunday morning shows like really, really prime real estate. And I'm sitting in that seat. And I was like, I, first I have to be the rookie and, and listen more than I talk. And then I have to show that I'm, I'm able to stomp with the big dogs." So once I kind of solidified myself on that, on that show, my goals changed because, like that was a huge accomplishment for me. And to be honest, the main reason I, I, I believe I got the opportunity to even audition, like you said, was proximity. I was in a studio next door. Um, so maybe for a little while I was a seat filler. And I know that. I'm very aware of myself. But I can be a seat filler and steal the show. And if you, if you realize that, you, you, can like, you can pretty much solidify yourself in any field. Now, once I did extra, I really like it. I love doing extra it breaks the, the monotony of talking about football, which I feel like I do 24-7. Um, but talking to celebrities is, it's a huge blow to your ego. And not in the sense that I, I want to be the, the, it's not like, like my day's over. Like, I don't need people to tell me how great I am. Like, I, I actually, I prefer you to tell me um, how good I do as a host than how great I was as a receiver nowadays. So I don't need people to tell me how good I am. I'm talking about, it's a bloated ego in a sense like, like when I went to interview J-Lo. So she, she has this fragrance, we're at this, this like perfume shop in New York. I have to work in the morning, wake up at 4 a.m. I'm in deep New York. She's supposed to be there at eight. I get there at seven to prepare. I've been writing notes all day. I've already worked early in the morning. So I'm running on fumes. I get there and I'm just like going through my notes. I'm walking up and down like I used to do when I worked for Total Access. And, and so she did, it's 8.30, nine, she doesn't get here. And I'm like, damn, man. 9.30, 10, 10.15, she shows up. And I'm, I understand my job at this point. This is what I signed up for. Her handler walks in and her handler is this young lady who has no idea who I am. And she's talking to my producer. She's like, all right, jail has five minutes. And my producer's like, ah, yeah, we're about eight or nine, right? And, and he's trying to be nice about it. And she's like, five. And he's like, eh, well, we'll take about six or seven. And she's like, five minutes. And then she looks at me and I'm just chilling. I kind of got this face where I'm over it, but I'm not rude though. And I'm just chilling. Right. And she looks at me and she's like, five minutes and walks off. And I was like, yeah. and this is her, this is like her PR rep. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So they can be tough, man. Like, I'm like, man, like, this, is, this, is this what I'm going to be doing? I love entertainment, but am I just going to be just waiting on celebrities and having some 24-year-old kid just punk me, um, and, and tell me and tell me to sit still and don't go over the shot clock? Like, like that, it, it kind of bothered me in that moment. And then j walks in and then A-Rod walks in and this crowd comes in and, you know, I signed up to do a job, I'm going to do a job. And once she bends the corner, I flip the switch. J-Lo, what's up? How you doing? Oh, man, forever young. And, you know, I, I know J-Lo. I know her music. I know the whole In Living Color, the movies. And I'm doing everything. I'm going there, boom. She's a dancer. She's a singer. She's a philanthropist. I was like, oh, in this new movie, Hustlers, may I say Oscar? Like, I'm doing the whole thing, right? And, and she's like, Oh. Excuse me. She, she sits down and she's like, you're new. And I'm like, oh yeah, how you doing? My name is Nate Burleson. I used to play football for a long time, but this is what I'm doing now. It's entertainment and I'm locked in. And she's like, "Kind hm, of give me that football? And then I was like, um, so yeah, are you ready? I'm ready. And I was like, God, so now I kind of got her wrapped in just a little bit focusing on like trying to figure out who I am and why I haven't she seen me in this entertainment space. Right. And then I'm like, so now I, I add on a little bit of the flavoring, you know what I'm saying? I salt bait this thing. So I'm like this, I'm talking to my producers. I'm like, all right, so we're gonna come in on the one shot, the two shots right here. JLo, if you wanna address the camera and make sure you guys keep the boom mic out of it. Three, oh, look at you. Right? And, she's like, and she's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, boom mic, two shot, uh, three, two, one. There's no way you play football, right? And I was like this. I don't know if I'm going to take that as a sign of disrespect or a compliment, but either way, right. I'm, I'm real smooth. I had to answer everything. I'm like, but either way, I'm ready to do this. And one, Jayla, what's up? Right. Halfway through the interview, she does it again. She's like, are you sure that you're a football player? You haven't been doing this the whole time. And like 18 minutes later, we in the interview because in that moment of me just doing me and, and that, the, the her PR person seeing me, she's just like, keep going. This is good. Keep going. That's um, perfect. But, but I say all that because I ended up hopping in the car, proud of my work, knowing that's going to be a good, what, three-minute interview? Of course, yeah. Maybe. All of that time? Maybe, yeah. maybe. And, um, and I'm driving home exhausted, knowing I'm probably going to pull up to the house close to 12. I got to wake up in four hours and get ready to do a three-hour show. So I don't know if I want to do this forever, because like I said, it's a blow to your ego, and you really have to swallow that. And at this point in my career... Like, do I need to do that? Even though it's really fun to meet Al Pacino and Robert De Niro on the red carpet, like mind blowing, you know what I'm saying? Right. Um, so to answer your question, a very long window way I, I don't know, I did Rachel Way a couple times and the first time I was the guest and then a guest host. And I remember walking away and telling her and I was like, uh, Rachel, listen, you work a lot. So if you ever need a break, I got you. And uh, she was like, Nate, I know what you're doing. Uh, You're not slick, you know the art of being on TV, you know how to read the prompts, you know how to write. She was like, you know what, we'll give you a call. And I kind of want, I haven't really said this out loud, but the more that I see how Rachel Ray does her job um, and people within that space, she wakes up around 8 or 9, they show up around 9 or 10, and then they're done around 1, which is just like a great day, and it's not live. so. I wanna be like kinda of like how Oprah had Dr. Phil and, uh, and Nate Berkus, I got, I, if Rachel Wade is like, you know what Nate, I need somebody underneath my umbrella. You want your own show? And you can talk about travel, food, sports, and entertainment, we can do that. Like I think if I can pick one thing, that would be ideal because it will remove me from the morning grind of waking up right. at 4 a.m., coming home exhausted, and then also waiting on a celebrity for four hours for a two-minute interview.
1: <laughs> the one person who is the, the kind of pinnacle in terms of athletes who have that crossover appeal, right, is, is Strahan. Like, yeah. I don't know that Strahan's turned down a job in his life. The guy's just killing it, right? Like he's, right. He's, he works nonstop. Um, is that somebody that you look at and say, I want to do that? Or is that because it's the morning show and because it's that – I mean, obviously, Strahan doesn't need to do it either. And there has to yeah. be a time frame for him at some point where he's like, all right, I'm good, you know, or I'm just going to do something different.
2: Yeah, you know, um, Strahan, I ran into him actually when I was working for the NFL Network, uh, checking into the inter- Intercontinental um, right there in Century City, and Strahan is walking off the elevator, headphones in. He's uh, about to go for a run. And I'm like, what's up, man? How you doing? He's like, oh, I'm good, Nate, I see you. Man, I see you doing your thing, man, starting off your uh, post-career. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, give me some advice, man, give me some advice. I'm like, maybe one or two years removed from football back in 14, 15. And he said, hey, listen, man, when you first get in the league, you're willing to do anything. You're willing to work. Um, you don't really turn down a chance to get on the field. Coach say, go play special teams. We need you to play a different position. You do it. He's like, in TV, because we make money in football, and then we get comfortable talking about one specific thing. Sometimes these guys who are former ball players turn to media personalities, they turn down stuff because they don't need the money. And, and they feel offended when their boss or the network wants them to work more and work more and work more. He's like, so keep working. Keep working and don't turn down too many opportunities because they're, they're not all going to come around. Because if you don't accept it, they're going to find somebody else. Um, And just like football, guys are going to be younger, good looking, articulate. um, And there might be a few black men that can articulate the sport like us, but given the fact that the league is 75, 80% black, there's going to be more coming and they're going to be ready because now this job is attainable with all these different platforms and all these different shows. And I'm just like, damn, he's dropping knowledge. So I've always remembered that. And then years later, I think right when I got the extra job, the New York Post did an article. Nate said is the next Strahan. That's right. I remember and, that. And I was like, wow, that's a great compliment. And what's crazy about that, just the power of his name. This one when I knew Strahan was making crazy money. An article came out with me me and his face, side by side. I got calls for endorsements just off an article. I was like, wow. Damn, how much money is Strahan making if they giving me the crumbs? Um, but yeah he, he's one of those guys that I look up to in the sense that he's been very strategic and leveling up like he hasn't really made any like like linear moves it's, it's always been like a level up even when he made that move. what was it with Kelly Michael and Kelly or Kelly right. and Michael right. and it, it was uncomfortable and people were like he didn't give us a notice. He kind of just did what was best for him um, He works too much though for me at this point in my life. I have a 16 year old 14 year old 10 year old I have a wife who, who we have been um, spending more time together than ever, like everybody has. And I don't think I'm willing to work too much that those relationships start to suffer. Um, at 28, I would have answered that differently. Give me every job. Let's, let's, let's make as much money in the world as we can. But at 38, it's just like, let's, let's make sure who I jump in bed with um, from a job perspective, I'm happy with. I, I don't I don't necessarily care about the the money's good, but I don't care about the check. It's more about like who I align myself with.
1: Well, I, I can't wait to see the next step. I and I love listen, we've talked about this a lot. I was looking through my phone because we, we'll put some pictures up to cover this up on the on the YouTube channel. And um I mean the outfits, some of the outfits that you would wear coming into the building, man. I just Ridiculous. It, was, it was insane. And you you're, you're, you're still working with Baines and Baker, that suit
2: still company? You're working with Baines and Baker, still got the suit company, yeah. Still got the suit company, still have lions. i, I settle down on the wild suits, though, man. I, I Listen, I know people love stories, so I'll just weave in a few every, every now and sure. then. Matt Hasselback in Seattle, um, we were getting on the bus to go to a game, and I had one of my loud, I'm talking about a loud-ass suit with crazy colors. I don't know, maybe we were playing, like, the Miami Dolphins, and maybe it had, like, orange and turquoise, whatever. And I remember him getting on the bus, and he was like, man. Um, I don't know how many jobs you can have while wearing that suit. Maybe like a, a pastor at a mega church and then uh, and then and then a black dude, somebody in the back of the bus is like, or a pimp, and I was like <laughs> was, it's was one of the moments where I was like, damn. I do got this uh, Steve Harvey suit on with 22 buttons. (laughs) I need to get my life together. So, um, but at that point, I was like, let me just, I need to scale it back on how loud these suits are. So they're not as loud as they used to be back in the day.
1: Quick break now to tell you about our presenting sponsor, Viore. Simply stated, Viore is one of the favorite things that I own. Uh, They are clothes, athletic apparel that I absolutely love. It is the softest, most comfortable, most versatile performance apparel on the market. I found this brand a couple of years ago. They opened up a store just down the road from my house. Have a couple of buddies who've been wearing this gear. They said, give it a shot. Went in, bought it, loved it awesome shorts, incredible shorts, the kind of shorts that have that liner inside. So all you got to do is slip them on and you're ready to roll. Whether it's yoga, whether it's pooping, whether it's running, whether it's lounging, it all works well. VioriClothing.com slash Helipod to get 20% off. That's V-U-O-R-I Clothing.com slash Helipod. They have awesome joggers. Their new pant called the Ponto Pant. Couldn't be more comfortable. Great workout shirts. Everything you need to look good and feel good. Invest in your happiness and comfort. Check out vioreclothing.com slash helipod for 20% off now. And now, back to the show. Uh, I could talk about work in the business forever, um, but I, I generally... Don't like to keep guys on too long. I totally appreciate the time. I think that's the most valuable thing you can ask somebody for is, is their time. So I want to dig into your, your playing career, all right? Okay. Tur- turn back the clock to 2003. Yeah. You're at uh, University of Nevada. Yep. Yeah. Coming off a year where you have 138 catches, over yeah. 1,600 yards. I-, I think at the time, it was the third most catches in college football history. Is yeah. that right?
2: The third, second, second most. It was 142 and 138 yeah.
1: okay and one of the i can't remember i can't remember who it was but i think they were they were at houston that threw the yeah ball.
2: yeah houston because they had the air raid often. yeah they
1: threw a billion times a game so you're drafted in the third round yeah you put up crazy numbers in nevada you're going to the vikings who were coming off kind of a shitty year i think they were six and ten yeah they had dante culpepper and obviously randy moss right so yeah. You're like coming in there, Mr. Big Nuts, in your own mind, right? And it, but you right. come in Randy Moss's meeting room. Like, yeah. what was that like with Randy early on, that first interaction?
2: It was, uh, it was like walking into the lion's den. And, and Randy was the biggest, strongest, baddest lion in the world. But now you see an image on National Geographic of a lion just like chilling, laying on his side. And he's sitting there yawning, tongue out, <laughs> but you're still scared of it, you know? And that's how Randy was. In the meetings, he was so chill and so relaxed. He never really got emotional. He never really got too high, too low. He was just like a lion. But when that game came around, it was time to hunt. And, it, it, and the reason I describe it that way is because if me as a person like was literally in a lion's den, like I would be scared. And I was, as a rookie, I was, I was shook. I, just, I didn't want to mess up around him. I didn't want to say the wrong thing. I wanted him to think I, I was cool so he would be my friend. Um, so I pretty much didn't do anything to get on his nerves. Um, I, I, just, I just wanted to be good. And I remember messing up, just like every rookie, just messing up, messing up. It was two high safeties. And these two high safeties are supposed to bend in the middle. And I just kept running that streak because in college, when I went straight, the the ball was coming to me. And even if it was double coverage, it was coming to me. And coach was like, Nate, two-eye safeties, the middle's open, you're supposed to bend that thing. And I'm like, yeah, okay, I get it, I get it, I get it. And then like uh, a few plays later, same play, I don't bend it. Nate, two-eye safeties, the middle's open, you're supposed to bend that thing. And I'm like, yeah, man, gosh. And then I'm like studying at night, we go to the next day's practice, they give me the same look. They're clearly trying to get their third round draft pick on the same page as the office. Two hour safety mills open. I don't bend it. Same thing. Nate, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> and I remember getting in a huddle, and I was just like the h- typical. Every rookie has felt this, we're like, oh, man, damn And Randy's like, hey, come on, dummieson. You got to get it right. <laughs> and I was like, I can either respond or just be happy the fact that Randy Moss was talking to me and gave me a nickname. So like for like a couple of months, he just called me, hey, Dummison. Hey, Dummison, go give me some water. Hey, Dummison, you bring the pads in. Hey, hey Dummison, good catch. So like that was my nickname that Randy Moss gave me. And, uh, and I remember just not even being mad about it. And, and it, was, it was one of the, the best times of my life. Like being a rookie that Randy Moss, he saw, but you had to earn his respect by your on-field play. And that, honestly, that took like a year for Randy Moss to like really see me and respect me as um, like an equal, not equal talent, but an equal. Um, and, and I remember my rookie year, I had like, you know, a couple touchdowns and 30-something catches. And then that following year, going to training camp, I was stronger. I was confident. I wasn't a rookie. And I remember that training camp, I was cooking. Like, I Like, you couldn't stop me. I'm jumping over dudes, I'm talking trash. And it was like, one day at training camp, like I I must have went up top over two dudes and came down and kept my feet and just kept running up the sideline. Ball in one hand, talking shit the other direction, spiked the ball, boom! And I remember running back to the huddle and he just kind of looked at me like... And it was like, he didn't say anything, but he said everything. It was kind of like you arrived. And that's when I... Won the starting spot next to him and put up a thousand yards. And from then on, he's been just like one of the OGs. What, ha-
1: what, his numbers that year were not good. He played like 13 games and
2: 700 some receiving yards. What, what was the deal with Randy that year? He had O-304. a hand he had a hamstring. He, um, he, he, uh, I remember he tweaked his hamstring middle of the season. And like I said, Randy didn't say much in the meetings. He already knew the sport of football, he didn't yeah. mess up much. Um, and once he got the news, we had kind of heard it. Cause you know, when a superstar gets injured, everybody has their ear to the door. Like, you know, they're kind of like, you know, we're waiting for news. We're waiting for somebody to come in in. Hey, so, so listen, so-and-so tweaked his ankle. So-and-so is going to be out this much. And I remember hearing Randy Moss is going to be out four to six weeks. And that was heartbreaking for us. And I remember walking um, to go eat and he was walking from the cafeteria going to the training room and I'm walking And like always, you know, you don't really say much to the vets, you know what I'm saying? So like, I'm just like walking, give him a little nod. And he kind of stopped me like, and I'm like, what's up? And he's like, look, and he's looking down on me. I remember because Randy's tall. And he was like, look, man, um, I'm gonna be out a few weeks. You have an opportunity, small window of time. Like get as many catches as you can, score as many touchdowns as you can. This is your chance, this is your opportunity. Because when I come back, like, Every boss coming my way, plain and simple, you know. And I was like, uh, uh, okay. And in the moment, it's like the, the conversation—it went in and out. Didn't really sink in. I took advantage of the moment, and I went out there and I had a big year. But years later, like when I became a vet, and I'm talking to young guys and trying to mentor all these receivers that are there to take my position, I, I truly understood what Randy was doing. Randy wasn't necessarily saying, like hey, go have a big year statistically, and maybe you can get into the Pro Bowl. And, and he, was, he was saying, if you put up numbers, you'll earn your level of respect, and checks come with that afterwards. Right. And if you do that, if you put up 50, 60 catches and 1,000 yards, like, that can carry you throughout a career as long as you can continue to match that every season. And I I – I think back at it now and I'm like, damn, he didn't have to do that. He he could have just he could have just let me be, but he saw something in me and he also taught me about the game. The game will, will always remember numbers. That's why when certain guys put up numbers and they end up getting these big deals, you're like, I don't know if he's that good. He might not be in your opinion, but his production needs to be paid for. So that was uh that was why he he didn't have a crazy season. And then after that, a year later, um you know, they decided to trade him to Oakland, which was another crazy situation because Randy had this way of like not wanting to make you love him and like him. He wasn't your typical athlete. Like, he didn't beg for your appreciation. And I think that rubbed people the wrong way. It made people upset. And the organization was kind of like, all right, let's move on, which was the most, I believe, idiotic decision the Vikings have ever made. And I say that with all due respect, but they can look back at it and be like, he did put up 23 touchdowns with Tom Brady. Of course. Later, So it's like, I, I believe they made that mistake and, and they look back at him and they're probably upset. But I remember him, us hearing about that and our coach coming up to me like, hey, listen, man. So I know you heard about it. We traded Ray Randy, you know, um, and I'm going to tell you this, that we felt comfortable doing that because we have you. And I was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> in my head, I'm, you know, I'm a second-year player, third-year player coming off a, a good year. You know what I'm saying? I'm just kind of like this. I'm like this. Okay. I'm giving them like that nod. But in my head, I'm just like, what are you talking about, bro? Like, that is stupid. And uh, and, and And that was kind of like, I think that was the beginning of the end of, like, that unit. Like, right. Dante Culpepper had an injury, never was the same. Uh, Randy Moss, it took him a while, a couple of stops before he had that great year with New England. So, um, it's unfortunate, man, because the I think that wasn't a business decision. That was more of a personal decision to give in Randy.
1: Was it, was it because of Randy's personality? Because, like, Randy always came across as somebody to me who, who literally did not give a shit what anybody thought. Like, Randy was going to do Randy. and he did it forever, right? He liked Florida State, Marshall. Like he he was this country dude from West Virginia, who I think is, in my opinion, the second best receiver in NFL history behind Jerry Rice. Like the dude was just sick. But did he literally not care what people thought? There had to be I, a little part of him that did.
2: Yeah, I, I've never met a player um, up until that point that had a had the ability to turn off the noise like Randy did. And yeah, he did, he had this like, he had this like way about him where he's just, he's unbothered by people's opinion. And even the praise, like even the praise, which it's hard to do. Think about the NFL, you're a rock star. Like you're a living legend, you're a football God. So like the praise is what kills us most is because we walk around and we think this illusion of life is real. The, the women love us. The money's good. We walk in and restaurants give us free meals. And like Randy didn't care about none of that. But he also didn't care about your opinion either when you want to criticize it, which I feel like is something that a lot of people are afraid to embrace. And like at a young age, I was listening to everybody and everybody's opinion counted. And I, I was getting my feelings. And I had to learn like years later, like it's OK to just turn off and not care what people think, like especially people that really have no impact on like how you're gonna live the rest of your life. Like he would make these plays at practice. I'm talking about like mind blowing plays. The, 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 the football version of N1 mixtape. You know, him and Dante had this like brother relationship. They bark at each other. They talk a lot of tr- uh, trash at practice. They get into it. I remember them going back and forth and, them talking about who's more athletic, and Dante's like, I'm a better hooper, and and Randy's like, man, you you too fat, you built like a bumblebee, and <laughs> Dante's like, man, you look like a pick with an afro, like they going back and forth, right? And but they just chirping, and then they got to this whole like, um, who got a who got who has the stronger arm versus the, the 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 faster legs, and and. Uh, Randy Moss is like, man, you can't outthrow me. Like, you can't outthrow me. I'm 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 him. I'm the fastest dude on earth. And and Dante on a knee can throw 60 yards. We've seen it. Frozen rope. Boom. Stop. And so, on yeah. a knee, throw 60 yards? Oh yeah. Dante Cope had a oh. crazy, crazy arm. Like he was from Ocala, Florida, country, country strong. So they would have these like back and forth. And I remember in one practice. Dante's like, all right, man, okay, you keep talking. And, and, and Moss had a nine route, a nine route, go route. <laughs> I remember in the huddle, Dante was like, hey, I'm about to let this thing go. And we all like, oh, snap, right? But he didn't really say it to Moss. He just kind of like, I'm going to let it go. Moss gets on his horse. And casually running, Moss is about a 4-3, casual. Standing up erect like Michael Johnson in the gold cleats, boom, boom, boom. Dante dropped back. Hey, Dan, he must have pulled this thing from his pants cuff. I mean, it was it was damn near off the ground. He reached back in, <laughs> right up in the air. The ball tight spiral. It's gone. It's it was like at, it was like fireworks in there. We're all. And then Moss running, looks up, hits a little smirk because he's like, I see what you're doing. Puts his head down. He's already like 15 yards into his route. Puts his head down. Catches it. Boom. No way. I said, boom. Another time, Moss is doing one-on-ones with Antoine Winfield. Quarterback's in here. Imagine quarterback being in there in the red zone. He runs a fade, simple fade. You only run really two routes to practice, a slant or fade. Antoine Winfield, feisty, undersized, but he's all over Randy. Antoine gets in him at the, at the line of scrimmage because Randy would stand tall. Randy just kind of gets to the back of the end zone expecting the ball to come up here. Instead, Dante throws it like over here. He throws it like right behind him. Behind him, right. The receivers, they turn like this and catch it. You know what I'm saying? If you have enough time, You could turn around this way and catch it, but that's, like, next level. I would have just opened my hips up, caught it, and then got my feet down. Randy is looking at this ball. Mind you, this is in the red zone. So this ball is traveling, what, 17, 18 yards from center to the sideline, back in the end zone. And Pep throws it hard. Like, this finger right here is broken because Pep broke, broke it at practice. So Pep throws it. Whew, so hard you can hear whistling. Ball's right here, Randy goes like, well, Antoine Winfield's right here. In his chest. Ball comes right here, he goes like this. And catches it over his shoulder, tracks it, blind spot, ball travels, catches it, taps his feet down. Now, I bring up those two plays because when I say he doesn't care about the praise or the criticism, Like we would go crazy when we see that stuff. Imagine that. Like we, I'm, I'm so much of a fan of talent. Like I'm not too cool for school, but that was pretty good. (laughs) I'm, I'm more like, I'm more like, yo, and I'm young too. So you know, you remember uh, Magic Johnson jumping all over Kareem, and Kareem's like, chill out. Of
1: course, the captain saying, all right, young buck.
2: Yeah, we got like 80 more games. Um, Like that's me every practice. And we oh oh my god, Randy! Whoa! Right? It, it, and and Randy just throw the ball.
1: Didn't even crack a smile.
2: And go back to the other. I'm I'm, hey, we're going nuts. And I was always like, it, it's like Dame Lillard hitting the shot, yeah. and everybody going crazy. And Dave the bomb pilot. Like, that was Randy, and it, it it blew my mind. So yeah, like Randy had this ability not to care about things, and I think that um, that worked for him. It really did, but. It's not that he didn't hear and listen. And I'll tell this last story about Randy. When we won that wild card game in 2004, we're playing the Green Bay Packers. And we, bless you. And we, um, and we beat up on the Packers. Um, they beat us twice in the regular season by three points. We go and we beat them up. Brett Favre led Packers. We're going crazy. We get in the locker room. We're like, oh my God, we just won this wild card game. And Randy had a good game. He did the fake moon. I scored a touchdown. I'm sitting, sitting next to Randy in the Green Bay locker room. After playoff win, talk about life is good. Like these are moments that I remember. And I'm just like, damn, this is crazy. And Randy's just sitting there chilling, like, hey, what's up, Nate? Yeah, I'm like, oh, all the reporters swarm, right? Boom, Randy, Randy, oh, Randy. And one reporter was like, Randy, Randy, great win. How's it feel to take this win back to Minneapolis? He was like, Hey, ain't you from Minnesota? He's like, Yeah. He's like, Aren't you? You work for the local paper, Minnesota, right? And the guy's like, "Yeah, yeah, that's me, that's me." He's like, "I heard everything you said about us during the season." Uh oh. He's like, "I'm not gonna answer your questions. What you think we don't read?" He was like, "How you gonna sit here and act like you're happy for us when you were dogging us, dogging us all year?" He's like, "Don't say shit to me." And I and look and all the reporters, it was like it was like like in the movies where. The hot, the, the spotlight gets on somebody. And they oh, yeah. everybody else, everybody else kind of backed up. And me, even me, I'm right next to him. I got super uncomfortable. I'm like, but in that moment though, like I always appreciate things later because I didn't know how to handle it. It's all new to me. I went to Nevada, I went to Nevada Reno, like reporters and big, like the big stage and the glitz and the glamour, pop around. I didn't deal with that. But as I got older, I realized like for me to know Randy personally, and him to have this, like, this, this title of someone who, who didn't really care and didn't really care about how you felt. And somebody was like, because he's quiet, you might think that he isn't intelligent. Like in that moment, Randy Moss, like so eloquently put, like, I read what you write. And you have been the opposition on you. And because you think that I don't know you, think that I don't know your name, think that I haven't read your articles, you're gonna come here and smile in my face. And, and either way, it makes me mad. Either you're assuming that I don't read it, or you don't think I'm man enough to call you out for fronting in front of me. And I was just like, damn, like, like those moments, those are like make native man moments that I take with me outside of football. And and that, like, those are like my Randy Moss stories. People saw the highlights on the field. I saw a, a totally different side. Like I saw the man and, and that that's a guy that I respect more than uh, most people.
1: So Randy goes to Oakland, you play one more year uh, in Minnesota. And then you go to Seattle, you get a monster deal. Yeah. To go to Seattle. And it was, it was kind of perfect timing. And I, I didn't realize this until recently, but Steve Hutchinson had gone from Seattle to Minnesota, he signed a really big contract, $49 million contract, signed an offer sheet, and there were what's called poison pills in the contract, which made it impossible for the Vikings to match it. Yeah. And so the Seahawks did the same thing with you. They put poison pills in the contract. Do you remember what those, those poison pills were, those provisions that essentially made it impossible for the Vikings to match it?
2: Yeah, no doubt. The way it was explained to me, because like I said, I'm going through all this for the first time. um, It was like a pissing contest between organizations. I remember hearing that back in uh, 2005, 2006. And I was a restricted free agent. I go visit Seattle because Minnesota put me on a a third round tender, which was $715,000. Now, come on, man. kid out of Reno. I'm like, I'm telling my agent, like, but it's $715,000, man. Like, he's He's like, he's like, nay, you don't get it. You still don't really get how this NFL works. There's a lot more money out there. Let's go (laughs) visit Seattle and see what's going on. So we go to Seattle. Seattle is like, look, we want you. And to be honest, Tim Ruskell, who was the GM at the time, I believe he wanted me more than hungry. And Tim Ruskell was basically like, look, we're gonna give you a deal. Um and you know, at first it started around 10 million. And then it climbed up to like, all right, we'll give you, you know, three years, 11, three years, 12, four years. It went to four years, 16 million with $4 million signing bonus. And here's where the poison pills come in. So what they did is within this, this restricted free agent offer sheet, they signed in there that if Nate plays five or more home games in, uh, in uh, Eden, no, Minneapolis. Yeah, Minneapolis. Um, You're going to have to pay him um, up to $49 million contract, which my contract period in Seattle has always been a four year. Wait, I'm sorry. Yeah. Four year, four year, $16 million contract. Um, And, and what was wild about that is as i'm signing this contract i'm sitting in the gm's office and i'm like yeah it's crazy man, it's a big deal i'm I'm like wait 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 so so you're saying like when it it scrolls across on you know nfl network and sports center um it's gonna say nate has a seven year 49 million dollar contract and he's like yeah yeah exactly exactly and i was like but but my contract isn't that. Like, how am I going to explain that to my family? He's like, <laughs> <laughs> and my family friends. And he's like this. He's like, I don't know, kid. First world problems, bro. You're still going to be a millionaire. Like, get over it. And I was like, oh. I was like okay, all right, you're right. I'm tripping. Uh, moving on. And uh, and that was it. And, and, of course, Minnesota, who wanted me back, was like, we like Nate. I mean, he's good, but he ain't $49 million good. <laughs> and that's when I learned about the poison pills. And they actually removed that because you, they literally could put anything. They said, it, it could have been like, if, if Ragnard, uh, the mascot, shaves his beard, you gotta pay Nate hundred million. You could, you could have put anything in there at that point. There, right. there weren't any, uh, any provisions to stop that. So that was, uh, that was unique in its own. It's funny, like you, you go through the league and it's like a school in itself. Like I went to college, I've learned so much about life and finance and even speech communications business administration, all these different things. But when, you, when you're in the NFL, it's its own college. And you walk out so much smarter about life because you're literally going through it. The corporate world that everybody goes through, like, you get it. That's why nothing in TV surprises me. I'm not, you know, how, Dan, you know how it is. Like somebody that hasn't necessarily been through the corporate infrastructure, they'll go on the TV and you're just kind of like, hey man, this is it, bro. You can't get in your feelings, dude. Like, right. It, it's a nasty business, you know? And, like, that's what, that's what the NFL taught me. Like, learn ways to benefit from it and don't get offended when you're not. And if you, if you can kind of understand that, life, life is easy. Not necessarily easy, but it's, it's easier. Well, that's,
1: you know, the interesting thing, too, about, about television, and I, I would guess any workplace. I've spent my whole life in television. But it always amazes me how many higher-ups are afraid to criticize, especially former athletes, to coach them up, essentially. And that's why when you find somebody that gives you constructive criticism or just says, Hey, that wasn't very good. Right. I I really appreciate that because we all want to be better, but there are so many people who are fearful of correct. And I said, listen, these, these guys take coaching better than, any of us <laughs> yeah. because they've spent their whole life yeah. being criticized
2: by coaches who are trying to make them better. Yeah, it's almost a detriment if you don't. Because when, when, when you first leave the game, I remember being at the network and every time I got off air, it was, hey, good job, good job, you know, good job, good job. And I, right. and I remember one show, I, I got the mush mouth, I'm fumbling through my words, <laughs> I got crust in my eyes, I done stayed up all night partying. I'm like, I know that was a bad show. You know, like, I think I froze one time and was looking at the wrong camera. All that. It was just bad. I think
1: I, I, think I remember that show.
2: Yeah, I know you remember that show. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, man. It's, it's funny how that works. And, you know, you're – so, back to Seattle, you, you – that's home for you, right? So, yeah. you get your first big deal in the NFL and you're, and you're back home and you were going to be maybe not the guy, but you were expected to be, like, kind of 1B. Was that yeah. – is that
2: fair to say? I was stressed. I was stressed, man. I was brought there, and like I said, I don't think Hungry necessarily needed me um, because they had Daryl Jackson, they had Bobby Ingram, DJ Hackett. They had some guys that were playmakers. Um, And then my first year there, I ended up tearing my thumb. Like, I fell down trying to catch myself, and my thumb that stops right here was touching my wrist. Mm. And I remember the doctor saying, listen, you can get the surgery, but you just signed here, man. Like, it was was, kind of like a little varsity blues. He was like, I mean, listen, you can just tape it up, wrap it up, we'll cast it up. Um, and if you make it through the season, we'll, we'll repair it afterwards. And I was like, but I can't catch, it's my thumb. It's not like a toe or something. He's like, right. yeah, but like, I mean, you just signed here. Like just signing here and then sitting on the sideline an entire year for a thumb, it's hard to explain. And he was thinking how I was thinking. So it didn't take much convincing. I just wanted somebody else to say it. I was gonna tough it through. And I, I remember just having a bad year. Like I, I couldn't catch, I'm, I'm dropping all kinds of balls. I remember that one of the, my teammates was like, hey man, um, like all seriousness, like, hey, hey, try these on. This is before I started wearing glasses. This, I didn't have glasses on. It was kind of like, have you ever considered wearing glasses? You didn't used to drop balls. I used to watch you, Minnesota. And I'm like, nah, bro, I, I got this thumb. Like, it's, it's really bad. And um, like, to the point where when it first happened, I tried to pick up this bottle of Snapple and it just fell right through my hand. So I couldn't grab anything. And that added stress. Now I'm like, first year, struggling. I'm a bust. My second year, they bring in Dion Branch, who was trying to get out of his deal in New England. And I'm like, oh, I'm really a bust. Like, they already have DJ, who I know, Coach Hogan, he likes because he drafted DJ. We have Bobby Ingram, who's a beast. And they bring in Deion Branch, Super Bowl MVP. Like, I'm, I'm not going to fit in. And we had that open competition at training camp. And it was my it was my best training camp. Best training camp. To the point where I remember Marcus Trufant, our cornerback, was like, Nate, like, what's, who you mad at, bro? Like, what's going on? Like, are you like, taking it out on my young cornerbacks? Like, Nah. Like, I feel like I got a lot to make up for. And, like, the fact that I'm sitting here fighting for playing time, not even fighting to be number one, and they brought me here, like, I just got a lot to prove. And I remember Coach Hogan like, kind of telling me, like, look, it, it's up to you and DJ, whoever's going to win this position, who's going to be starting opposite of, of Deion Branch. And that, that training camp was my best training camp, hands down. I only think I dropped the ball. Vicious, is strong. You know, I'm kind of growing. I'm, I'm growing into that grown man strength phase where I was, right. like, late 20s. And uh, I remember right before season, Holmgren brought me in his office. He's like, hey, what's up, Nate? How you doing? Sit down. I'm like, I'm good. He's like, look, so I know I said it'd be open competition and you had one hell of a camp. I can't take that away from you. Um, at practice and in the preseason game. He's like, but I'm gonna go with DJ Hackett as the starter. And I was so hurt because like, you know, it's one thing to just have an understanding that I'm here to collect a check, but I put in that work because I was trying to prove so much. And then everybody else kind of noticed my work and was like, "Yo, that dude's—he's—he's he's not only proven that he should start, he's maybe proven that he's our best receiver right now." And inside boiling, outside calm. Shake his hand. I was like, I, "All right, coach, I appreciate that." Walked out. In my head, cursing up a storm. Walked out of his room. Walked into um, our uh, special teams coach's room, and I was like, "Look, I haven't returned to ball since high school." Like. I was a backup punt returner, like a safety punt returner in, in college, but like, I need to be on special teams. He's like, well, I mean, t- not too many like veteran wide receivers want to play punt return. I was like, I need to touch the ball. And in my head, I was thinking if I make a play every time they throw me the ball or every time I catch a punt or catch a kickoff return, at some point the reporter's going to be like, yo, Nate is your, your best playmaker. How is he not like more involved in the offense? And within like the first three games, it, it worked out perfectly. They put me in for, like, two or three plays, throw me the ball twice. I'm getting busy. You know, I score a touchdown. And then I catch, take a punt return to the crib. And I remember it was kind of, like, reluctantly, like, All right, just give them more playing time. All right, Nate, we got plays designed for you this week. Cool. Boom. And then that season, I ended up leading the team in touchdowns and, and yards. And and that, that, was a, that was a great moment for me because, like, I'm not a guy that gives up or falls into, a, like, a, a, a deep funk as a football player. But it just showed, like, there's ways to get your point across by putting in the work. You don't always have to complain. You know how it is. There's people that like take something, feelings is equally as hurt as anybody else who goes through that same thing. But they're action people. Like I'm an action person. And certain guys I play with were just like, oh, coach said I'm, I'm a backup. F him. And it's like, that's not really the approach, bro. Like either you're comfortable being a backup or you go prove him wrong. So I did that. And then the following year I had the ACL and that was another like moment.
1: Right. So you, you, you end up leaving Seattle, you had the ACL and then the following year, you had your best year as, yeah. as a Seahawk, I believe. Yep. And that led to um, another nice contract with the, uh, with the lions. Yep. You, you go to Detroit um, and you guys had, you went, you made the playoffs your second year there. Yeah. But, but other than that, it was like six wins, four wins, seven right. wins. It's kind of the Detroit, like a lot of us have known, you know, for yeah. a better portion of the last 20 years. What was the most – well, A, what was the best part about being in Detroit? Because, you know, you talk to a lot of people who maybe have never been there. like, ah, there's no good parts of Detroit. Right, there are right. good parts of Detroit. I actually like, like, like Birmingham, some of those areas, those are some nice spots.
2: Nice area, um, yeah.
1: But what was the best part and what was the worst part about your time with the Lions?
2: Um, The best part was it's a combination between the city like feeling pride again because their team took pride in playing. I mean, there's dudes that literally were like, yo, this is the graveyard of the NFL. I had a dude tell me that when I signed there, First day I stepped in the locker room. Yo, Nate, I thought it was a rumor, bro. Like he was surprised to see me like. Like, we have both landed in hell or something. Like, he was like, hey, you here? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, but I signed a contract. And he is like, oh, man, that's crazy, because this is where cats come to bury their careers. And he just walked off and was like eating his snacks from the lunchroom. I'm like, this dude's in a jersey? Like, this is, the, it was like the bad news bears are like the replacements or something. Um, but they, you know, Coach Swartz, we did those individuals out, and um, we ended up, like, putting it together. But that second year was special. Like, we didn't obviously win a Super Bowl, but, like, we beat San Diego Chargers in Detroit around Christmas. And I remember the crowd just going crazy. And it's, it's sad to say, but we kind of knew it was our Super Bowl, if that makes sense. It's like oh yeah, that playoff berth was like, you know, we, not, we might not hoist the Lombardi, but this sure does make us feel damn good because Detroit was in the midst of going bankrupt. There were certain areas of the city that looked like a bomb went off, like no joke. We're talking a place that was that was bustling with Motown and Ford factories at one point where people from Atlanta, New York, across the border would all come to Detroit. And I know these stories because I talked to people like OGs and 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 older people that lived there, like yo, Detroit was once something special. Um, to see like, like the the despair there. And then you'll drive past the Ford factory. And we're talking about two blocks long, bro. Empty, empty, which is eerie. It's right. like, wow. So like to give people hope, like that was special because you know, certain places are used to winning. So you, you'll never feel, you'll never have that feeling. Um, I know what that feels like to give people hope. Um, but yeah. And then playing with Calvin, just like he was, he was something different, man. You're something different. So, you know, it's funny. There's so many,
1: like Willie McGinnis, for instance, yeah. um, who works with us, obviously. I always look at the coaches he had when he played, and I'm just, I'm like, that's unbelievable. You know, he he played for Bill Parcells, and then he played for Bill Belichick, and he yeah. played for Pete Carroll, right? Yeah. Those three coaches, he also played for Romeo Cornell, but those three coaches, I mean, they're yeah. all they're all Hall of Famers. Like, it's, no doubt. it's no doubt.
2: incredible. It's a luck of the draw.
1: Yeah, and and... and he had those experiences. Your experiences are Randy Moss and Calvin Johnson, yep. two of the freakiest wide receivers to ever catch a football in the National Football League. Yeah, but they're they're very different personalities. They're both freakishly talented. Yeah. but very different personalities. What was what was Calvin
2: like? It, it was like uh, you know how you see different versions of of a movie and you're like, oh okay, uh, Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis is a good Batman. And then you're like, George Clooney, not so much. And you're like, oh, you know, uh, Christian Bale, I like Christian Bale. Affleck was all right. So I say that because I was always Robin. But, like, I played with a version of a superhero. You know what I'm saying? I was always a sidekick. Randy right. Moss was a superhero. Say he's Batman, I'm Robin. And then I, I, I go to Detroit, and it's like, it's a new cast. And I'm in, like, this new version of Batman. I'm like, I thought the last Batman was pretty good. This movie gonna be really good. <laughs> like, Like, Calvin... Like if Randy was an artist and he just casually painted and when he was done, it was a masterpiece, but it looked so effortless, Calvin would draw that same masterpiece, but his, his approach was that painter who's vigorous. You ever see those painters like- <clears throat> Oh yeah. And just the face, making the
1: faces while they're painting. The yeah.
2: that's, that's him. His, his way and how he uh, like went after greatness, was different than Randy. Like Calvin was blessed. He was still, he's 6'5", you know, 230. But Calvin would work in the weight room like, like he's the last dude on the roster. I mean, in Detroit, we would do like little combines because they wanted to see how guys came back in shape. And like receivers do the 225 and, you know, we tap out around anywhere from seven to 13, if you're really strong. Calvin just get under 13, 14, 15. 16, I remember spotting him one time. He's like, 17, 18, 19. And he mm. looks around he's like, 20. And then he gets up and everybody's like,
0: ah, oh, damn, 20 reps, that's crazy.
2: And Calvin's just like big. He's like, he's like baby Huey. He's just like, and, and I remember going up to him I'm like, CJ, you think you slick, huh? He's like, what? I'm like, bro, you could have did way more than 20. And he's like. Oh, you noticed that? (laughs) Like, he's like, it was almost like, there was times where I'm like, bro, are you, are you really, you might be a superhero, you're just trying to play it off and like, and not not embarrass us. Like like the movie Incredibles when it's like, Dash, don't win by, by a lot. Like Calvin would, he would literally scale back at practice. We're doing conditioning. And like, he would beat us by like five, six yards. And like at the very end, we're all like, damn CJ, slow down. And he would kind of look back like, man, nah, y'all need to catch up. Because he was so gifted, but he worked every single day. Um, and like for me to like, like see that and see two different versions of this, the, a type of receiver that can pump fear, like me to being in a slot. And my favorite part was looking at Randy, who had this stance of like, hey, this is light work. Like, just
1: nonchalant.
2: Nonchalant, just too. I'm out. The, I'm out the, as soon as his ball snapped, I'm running past this corner in front of me. That safety that I think he's slick, but cheating over. I'm good. We got this. And then, and then Calvin would get there and he's big and he, he'd get his low stance to make it hard for you to jam him and condense his, his size. And the DB be sitting there. All you see is the whites of his eyes and like him on his heels because he's like, I don't want to get physical with Calvin. Calvin's going to beat me up. And I need to get out of here because Calvin's just as fast. I seen one game. I seen one game Randy beat quadruple coverage. That's a true story. And then I also see one game where I'm in a slot and I see this big-ass D-N. He comes and lines up over me, and I'm like, where's he going? Oh, he must be coming out to, like, act like he's going to guard me and then blitz. And then he walked past me, and, they, and he walked out to Calvin. So they put their D-N, this big-ass dude who's like 6'4", to, to get in Calvin's way to slow him down. The cornerback was behind the D-N, and then behind the corner was a safety. So they're just going to have
1: the DN just kind of jam them off the line.
2: Damn, they just told the DN "Maul Calvin. If you get your hands on him, that'll slow him down. At least right. we know that play. They're not going to throw his way, you know, but Calvin was so strong. We had a plan for that. And they, we still threw it to him. And he still caught it. Like it was, it was crazy. Like, and I, and I, people always ask who's better. I got to give Randy the nod because Randy played longer. Um, and you know, his, his numbers speak to that. Sure. I do believe if Calvin would have played as long as Randy, we'd be talking about him as possibly the greatest receiver of all time.
1: Wow. Are you surprised that he walked away?
2: No, because history repeats itself. Barry Sanders was going through the same thing. And I think Calvin was tired of being banged up and not seeing the reward at the end of the season. I do feel like if he was playing for Bill Belichick, he would have played 13, 14, 15 years for the simple fact that Calvin was the perfect Bill Belichick player, uber intelligent. I think he graduated with an engineering degree from Georgia Tech, mother a doctor, father worked like for the railroads in some capacity. So a blend between uh, high intellect and blue collar attitude. And then given the fact that Tom Brady's ball placement would have been so perfect that you wouldn't have seen Calvin Johnson jumping up in the air and landing on his body time after time. Like if you look at his career, he fell a lot and got hit a lot. You can't show me too many examples of when Tom Brady had his receivers, like getting rocked or climbing up in the air and falling down nine feet. Um, And that was CJ because certain receivers will look at a ball and be like, I ain't going to get that. CJ look at a ball and be like, well, I guess God blessed me with the tools to jump up and get it. Here we go, boing. And he would just, and he would go get it and fall down and, and all awkward and body and they'll show up for practice, limping through practice. And I'm like, CJ, I get it. You're a leader, but we need you for the game, bro. Like stop hey, trying, to, up. I'm trying to be tough, try to lead by example. CJ, chill, Nate, come on, man. I remember walking to my coach and I was like, hey, Schwartz, hey, uh, Scott Linehan, CJ's done. Like, what are we doing? Uh, we didn't know it was that bad. And they, yeah, it's that bad. Hey, I'll take all of his reps in mind. CJ, you good. He'll reluctantly walk off the field. Like that was CJ. Now imagine having that dude, that attitude, that high of a football IQ on a team that wasn't wearing them down.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, and, and listen, so many tough years there in Detroit and so many years where the organization was somewhat dysfunctional yeah. and, he, the, the end is, was so acrimonious for them. How, yeah, no right. Like they, he, they made him pay back part of that signing bonus still to this day. Yeah. He still hasn't. Yeah, absolutely. He still hasn't kind of made amends or they haven't made amends with him. You know, I, I harken back to a story that just a couple of weeks ago on this podcast, Reggie Wayne told that he, you know, told us a long time ago at NFL network, but you've heard it. He signed with the Patriots. He's there for two weeks. He got a $450,000 signing bonus after two weeks. He's like, he just wasn't feeling it. He knew he was done. He got to that point and he went to Belichick and said, Hey coach, I, I don't want to take a spot from one of these young guys. Like, I just want to tell you, like, I'm good, man. I think I'm, I've had a career that I've, I'm happy with and, and I'm, I'm going to call quits. And uh, he goes, okay. And he goes, and I know you guys paid me. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll give it back. And Belichick says, keep it. He says, keep it. He, he was there for a cup of coffee and the Patriots let him keep, you know, four hundred thousand dollar plus signing bonus. And the Lions, the greatest receiver they've had in, in, in franchise history, and they're you know, they're they're battling over this at the end. Who
2: never who never complained, who who never talked about being on another team. I used to tell Calvin, you need your own shoe, you should be getting more money, you're the best receiver. He never talked about cash. I'm talking about a dude that did it the right way, and it wasn't necessarily at the end of it. And they're like, oh, now you got to pay us back. What really made Calvin upset was when rumors started to float around that his body was getting banged up and he was considering retirement, somebody from the Lions finance department oh boy, loaded out, well, if he does, he's going to have to pay back. And I think that really just, like, sent things in motion for Calvin. Like, he kind of heard it secondhand, and it must have been confirmed from somebody, and he was just like, Really? I'm considering retirement? And, you, and the first thing you're saying is, I want to pay back money, not let me convince you in any way that I can not to retire? I think that's what the disconnect is. And I feel like the Lions need to make amends. And it's not even about the money. I think they need to apologize, reach out to him, and send him a check. Because you want a guy like that to come back and show his face in the locker room. He's such a fixture there.
1: Well, and for, for years, Barry Sanders didn't go around. And now, you know, they're on... They're insane. on good good footing. Um, you, you the, the the You Google Nate Burleson and pizza pops up in like the third oh, yeah. line, right? Yeah. So that was one of the things that people in Detroit will remember. And it, it's a car accident that you, you got into uh, because you were trying to save a pepperoni pizza. Yeah,
2: yeah. T- tell us that it story wasn't again one because slice, right? <laughs> classic. It wasn't one slice of pizza, Dad. It oh, was so-
1: it was a whole pizza.
2: Two of them. Baby. It was a bunch of pizza. So I had pizzas, the Happy's Pizza, is a pizza spot. Shout out to my guy Happy. Um, <laughs> coming off a game where the Lions played against the Washington Redskins, and I put up like 117 yards or something like that. And and um, at that point, uh, St- Matt Stafford and I were leading the NFL and wide receiver complete wide receiver quarterback completion percentage. So I was in the zone, and I remember our coach, Sean Jefferson, who played in the league as well, he was like, Nate, you're, you're in the zone, stay there. Like, stay there. And I was. I was like, I'm gonna have, I'm gonna have a Pro Bowl year. At my age, I'm gonna have a Pro Bowl year. And um, so I'm, I'm out, having a good time. We're eating, watching Monday night football. Just like any time, drinking, relaxing. And then he always gives me food. He's like, take home food to the fam. And I'm like, all right, cool, let's just sit back, relax. After the game's over, I sit, I chill, I hydrate. Because I don't like driving tipsy, right? Nobody does. So. As I'm leaving, I got two pizzas, I got wings, I got ribs, I got sides. In the passenger seat. In the passenger seat. This is like midnight, one-ish. So this is way after the night it started, right? Um, Because we had to wait a while for me to just like make sure if I hop in a car, I'm not close to being sober, but I'm sober. It's funny because right before I got on the freeway, there was this hookah spot that I always go to that these young dudes ran. And so I popped in there because I was supposed to go by earlier, but I didn't. And they're like, Nate, what's up? Oh my you got a good game. It's gonna be our year, yeah, let's take a shot. Cause I would always go in there, smoke a little hookah and I would take a shot with them. Right. And I was like, nah, not tonight, man. I've already sobered up. I'm straight, like, I don't want to, shot a tequila right before I go to bed. I got to drive home, it's like 20 minutes. Come on, let's take a shot. I'm like, nah, Like, I promise I'll come back tomorrow. Come on, y'all know I'll get down. I'll come by tomorrow. And I honestly believe like me not drinking in that moment it probably saved me from getting a DUI, right. because one, it would have been fresh in my system and fresh on my breath. And I might have been tipsy if I would have just banged down a couple of shots when right. I got in an accident. So I didn't take a shot. I hop in the car and all this pizza not buckled up. I am. And I'm listening to the new Drake album, Take Care. And this is auxiliary time. This isn't Bluetooth time. This is, you know, back in the day. Oh, yeah, you so, got to plug it in, baby. I plug it in, but I'm driving with my knees. You know what I'm saying? And I'm trying to plug in, driving my knees, and I'm looking down to the song, and, and then I look up as soon as I get on the freeway, and I'm right behind this van, this gray van. So instead of me just hitting the brakes like I should have, because I thought if I hit the brakes, all this is going to crash down, I reach over, and I put my right arm over the food and then I yank the wheel, right? To avoid this car. So I do it and I'm good. It's a little slick out, I'm headed towards the, the, the concrete medium and then I'm like, damn, let me straighten this car out. I yank it back, I'm headed towards the embankment now. I yank it back one more, I wish I was just went the embankment. I yank it back one more time, the car's, the car's straightening out like this and I'm like, oh, I got this, I got this. And then it kept going, I was like, I don't got this. <laughs> <laughs> then, boom, boom. And I'm holding on to this car, 10 and two. This arm slips off. My face is the steering wheel. This arm locks on. And then I, I get out the vehicle. Every door is smashed. My car's total, except for my driver's side. I kind of bang it open. And I get out, I see blood on my sweater. I'm looking around. And I'm moving my legs up and down. And I'm like, all right, my money makers are good. I run with these. And I look at my hands, and I'm moving my hands. This one's going like this. I'm like, all right, this one's going like this. And I'm like, man, what's... I'm like, what's up my hand? I had a sweater on. I pulled down my sweater, and these two bones are shifted. They're not. They're not out of the skin, but they're shifted. You can see this scar still right here. Yeah. Oh yeah. All the way down there, it's a, a plate in there, about fourteen screws, and then right there on a... the underside of the forearm, there. Yeah. Right there. There's a small plate about nine screws. So it's completely shifted. And I remember sitting there, and this is, this is Nate Burleson's mindset about life. This is why I'm, I'm team first over everything. Like, I was having a great year. And, I, and, I, and leading up to that night, I was like, I'm going to put up 1,000 yards. I'm going to have a Pro Bowl year. Towards the end of my career, it's going to be perfect. In that moment, I wasn't even thinking about myself. My, my first words out of my mouth were, I just fucked up our season. Mm. That was my exact words. Because at that point, when Calvin was double covered, me and Matt was just on a different wavelength. Like, it was like, Calvin's not there, Nate, I got you. Boom. And I knew that we could ride that into the playoffs. Um, and, And then I'm sitting there just like waiting, waiting for the police to come. I called a wife. I called a team, which is one of the most embarrassing, difficult calls I ever had to make knowing that I'm telling them I'm probably going to have surgery within the next couple of days, I'm going to be out. And at this point, I don't even know if I'm going to come back this year. And uh, I'm sitting there just pacing back and forth. Somebody pulls up, and they're, like, recording me, and they see me, like, pacing, but they don't know I have my phone in my hand, so it looks like there's a TMZ, like, video or something of me walking around. And I'm like looking, I'm like this, and I was talking to the team. And I remember uh, this white dude rolls up, and he's like, hey, what's up, man? Nate, how you doing? I'm like, I'm chilling, man. He's like, you all right? I'm like, yeah, the police are coming ambulance comes, all right, man, love you as a player, man. And then a black dude pulls up and he's like, he's like, hey, what's up, man, you all right? I'm like, yeah, he gets close, he's like, oh, Nate Branson, what's up, bro? I appreciate you, bro, on and off the field, man, you mean a lot, man, you're, you're deep in the community out here. I'm like, yeah, man, that's what's up. He's like, you good? I'm like, yeah, I'm good, man, I got, I got some people coming, I got the cops coming, all that. He's like, all right, cool, cause I don't need to be here when the cops come, I'm out. And I was like, that's so Detroit right there. <laughs> so, then, so then he leaves and then the police come And they ask me the question, ask me a question, ask me what happened. And they keep asking you the question to see if your story's going to change up. And I don't know if he necessarily believed me. He opens the door. Drake is playing. The food is smashed on the bottom. And he realizes, like, oh, this dude's telling the truth. I get there, and the story just keeps unraveling. I get to the hospital, and um, they have to take my arm and put it in this harness and yank it up so the bones can sit on top of each other correctly. I remember this nurse was just like, just like snatching and snatching it. And I'm like, damn, this dude's hella aggressive. Like, what's up? And um, I remember just like looking up at the nurse and he was, he was talking to the officer. He's like, we need to take a blood test. Um, and the officer's like, oh, "I did the sobriety test. Um, and he's, he's not tipsy, or it's, a, it's a one car accident. And he's trying to explain to him, he's like, no, I need, to, I need to do it anyway. And he's like, I already did it. Like, what are you doing? It's not even protocol. And I was like, "What's up with this nurse grabbing my arm? All funny, talking to this officer, trying to go against protocol." It was—I kind of knew the, what the nurse was doing. Like maybe they just wanted this story of like an athlete get, having a DUI. And I look up, and no joke, this nurse is wearing a, a nurse hat with Green Bay Packers logo on it. No yeah. way! I forgot that part of the story. Yeah, and 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 he looks down at me, and he's like, "Hey, man, I know it's not good to say right now, but..." I mean, I'm happy you're out, because <laughs> you're, you're tough to stop. And it was like, I guess not like, I'm, I'm for the jokes, but like in that moment, like you're like, thanks, Dick. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, um, I had the surgery and, and in so many ways I realized that was the beginning of the end of my career because I was, I was, you know, 30, 31, 32 and, um, and I'm dealing with, Recovered from an ACL. I broke my leg a couple of years prior, and, and I had my arm now. I knew I had to start thinking about the next chapter, and here we are.
1: And here we are. And you uh, you, you, went to a training camp, but you were injured kind of off I and on the throughout with, with, the, with the Browns. Johnny Manziel. Hey, and and remember how much you talked
2: about him that first year? Another, oh, my gosh. And another great receiver, Josh Gordon. Oh, that's right like Randy or Calvin. I was like, oh, man. I was like, man, I don't shoot the dice and went three for three on the uh, sidekick. Um, unfortunately,
1: we've never seen that, that Josh Gordon again. Um, you know, hopefully, hopefully we will at some point. All right, it's, uh, we've been going on forever. I'm going to hit you with some two-minute drills, just some quickies, Let's okay? Just some football stuff and some Nate stuff. Um, so many good ones. Who's the best wide receiver right now in the league? Best
2: wide receiver right now in the league? Tyreek Hill. Mm, the yeah. best? It's, it's a little bit of a twist. I, I just feel like he is the most dangerous. And it also has to do with his quarterback. So I, I, can, I can say Julio, of course, when Antonio was playing, um, Mike Thomas is a phenomenal talent. But, I mean, dangerous, though. Like, Tyreek Hill is a freak of nature. Um, yeah. Mike Thomas and Julio will forever be consistently in the conversation but as far as dangerous going with Tyreek Hill all
1: right quarterback with one throw on the line I originally had best quarterback here but I it's Patrick Mahomes I my opinion but one throw on the line to win the Super Bowl who's your quarterback
2: Aaron Rodgers
1: I like it can't argue with it at all the coach you would most want to play for right now
2: Uh, Andy Reid Big Red Big Red it's not even about the Super Bowl it's before that he just don't he just seem cool yeah just seem like he gets it
1: just like like your uncle or your dad like yep. I, yeah yeah I, I would love to play for Andy Reid um, wh- where should Cam go
2: Ooh, Cam should go to uh, I think Cam Cam should go to Oakland and I, I know they have Derek Carr and Marcus Mariota but let's just say that it's the end of Derek Carr's career there and it's a pit stop for Mariota. I want Cam to go somewhere and like literally and figuratively wear the black hat. He was Superman for a while. Now, like, he, 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 he turned that corner. Remember Cam was Smiley Cam with the baby face? Like, you know, he's trying to make everybody happy. Now that everybody's kind of turned on Cam in a sense, like, like put on a black hat, bro. Like, be the villain. Like, who cares? Embrace it.
1: That, that would be one hell of a quarterback for him, man. Mariota, Carr. Wow, that would, I, would, I would pay money to see that. Um, the person that you have interviewed, you talked about the JLo interview earlier in the pod, but where you kind of got shaky voice. Like you were like legit nervous, right? You've, I mean, you've interviewed a lot of people. Is there yeah. one where you remember like it took you a second? Like I'll give you I, – I, I was a commencement speaker at my, my high school, you know, several years back. And I remember it took me like, it felt like forever, but it took me like 10, 15 seconds to like exhale and compose and then be myself. Is there somebody that you've been like that with an interview?
2: Yeah, I was on the red carpet for the Irishman and, uh, you know, the cast rolls up and I'm talking to everybody. Um, De Niro has a a, a very matter of fact way of talking to you, Mm -hmm. um, where you don't have time to get nervous. He's very direct. Boom! But then Pacino rolled up and, uh, I'm like, hey, how you doing, Mr. Pacino? My name is Nazi. Hey, I know who you are. And I was like, what? That's awesome. And immediately I started getting sweaty on camera. And I was like, wait, time out. And I looked at our people at Extra and I was like, time out. Give me a second. I mean, hold on. I like, Seriously? Do you know who I am? And he's like, yeah, of course I know who you are, man. You do the sports show during the week and, and also the Sunday show on CBS. Come on. I'm a wow. football guy. I'm a football guy. And I was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> what the fuck is going on? And he was like, and I was like, "Who's your team?" He's like, "Ah, oh, you know, I can't say that." And then he walked away. He's like, "Jeez," and like that was like that was crazy to me. That was it was st- it still is like Al patino knew who I was. That's badass.
1: Um, last question, NBA: the the plans in place, man. The league's coming back. Uh, your brother's still working with the T Wolves, right? He's working with T-Wolves, yeah. yeah, yeah. T Wolves. Well, yeah. he he ain't coming back. They don't have to worry about that. They're not gonna be one of the twenty-two teams, right? Like <laughs> right. have you talked to your brother though about what that's gonna be like, or is he just so far removed because they don't have to worry about that?
2: No, no, no. He he actually uh he was working out people, but they would do it like one coach, one player at a time, and then they rotate hour on on the hour. Um, but like he was dealing with that, and then what happened with with George Floyd, and the riots, and he was like, yo, Nate, Minnesota is crazy right now. Yeah. Um, He said the people are upset, and we're sitting here still trying to work. The Timberwolves, because they work downtown, the Timberwolves are like, yo, employees, you get a hotel on the outskirts because we don't want you down here. Um, But, yeah, he's going to be training, um, still training players, because they had so much time off that when the season does return back around again after this tournament, they want their guys ready. Is Kevin older than you? He's two years older, yeah, but we look a lot alike. People thought we were twins growing up. So, like, growing
1: up, you were, you were always Kevin's little brother, and, he, you know, he played, in the, he played in the NBA for a couple years. Like, at what point did he become Nate's brother?
2: Um, the, the moment that I established myself as Randy Moss' number two, um, because that was, like, his second year with the Bobcats, and then – um, he went overseas. So when he came back from overseas, he came back from Germany and all of a sudden it was like Nate's his big brother, you know, cause I grew <laughs> up overnight. So, um, so yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's my, that's my dog. Dude, that's awesome. Uh, two. What are you going to ask? You going to ask about the NBA question? You want to give me a player, a team? What were you going to ask? You gonna ask oh, you, like time? you want
1: to get into it a little bit. Here's, well, here's my thing. You know, I'm out here in LA, like uh-huh. it's going to be in, I mean, in my opinion, the two teams are going to come out of the West, right? If, if, if you have those two, it's going to be the two LA teams, Clippers and Lakers. Give me two teams out of the East that
2: that you like. Ooh, um, I'm going to say the Bucks. Sure, I, I really like them. And I'm, I'm going to say don't sleep on Toronto. It seems like they're 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 building something special. And I thought that that Kawhi leaving was going to cripple them, but the simple fact that they're still in the conversation, you can't count out the champs. Somebody that hoisted up that trophy last year. Um, let me let me ask you a question. Since we're coming off the 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 heels of uh our, the the we're coming off of the last dance and uh, all the talk is about Michael Jordan and that's our era you know mm-hmm. what I mean like we we know about that so I'm I'm a, I'm gonna throw out four names okay you give me the best player the most impactful and your favorite out of these four okay. all right Michael Jordan LeBron James Kobe Bryant, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. So best Uh, player, just pure player, most impactful, just however you want to take that. And then to you, who do you like? Yeah,
1: well, so I I think that the best player was was Michael Jordan. And you can have the LeBron-MJ debate, you know, all you want. Like, listen, LeBron can kind of be – he can play five positions on the basketball court. Like, I don't – Michael couldn't do that. I just – think that what Michael did offensively and defensively, people forget he was the defensive player of the year as well, is amazing. Now, I had David Falk on the podcast, you know, a few weeks ago. And when you say most impactful, well, no, Brand Jordan, like nobody's more impactful from a business perspective than Michael Jordan. Now, the one thing Jordan did not do, obviously, with his famous Republicans buy sneaker statement was he – he basically had zero impact from a from a social standpoint. From a yeah. business standpoint, it was huge. LeBron, I think, out of all those people you name, is going to have the biggest impact socially
2: because yeah,
1: right. of what yeah. what he's doing. And uh, well, who's what was the
2: third one? Third one was just personal preference. Just out of those guys, like, who did you appreciate just watching?
1: Yeah, I, I loved. I mean, I, I Michael as well. I. I I appreciate, to me, LeBron is, when I go on a, when I'm standing on a football field and I'm watching an NFL game in person, field level, the most impressive athletes to me on the field are the the defensive ends, the guys that weigh like 270 and they're running like a 4'8 and just how fast they move on the field. And to me, LeBron, now he's like- version of that. Like, he's that ver—he's basketball's version of that, right? Like, yeah. it's, it's unbelievable to me a guy that is that size moves yeah. like that on the basketball court. Like, I used to say that about Shaq. Like, I thought Shaq was very underappreciated for his overall athleticism. You, yeah. you know, he was all about power, but the reality was Shaq a was guy. a ballerina on the basketball court, man. Like, yeah. the way he moved was incredible.
2: Yeah, I remember my brother, uh, he was telling me, because LeBron's about 260 now. He said, uh, This was years ago, early in LeBron's career, maybe middle part. He said, Nate, LeBron is, there's a rumor around, going around that LeBron's 285. And if that rumor is true, it's crazy because he's the fastest player in the NBA. Like, you remember when LeBron used to take the ball from baseline? Oh, yeah. Like four dribbles, and he's at the rim and beat everybody. And he was like, So just put that in perspective right there, how freakishly gifted LeBron is to be at that weight and moving that fast and jumping that high ahead at the rim. Like Le- LeBron is a freak. And and what's crazy, still doing it almost 20 years later.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, especially at that age. You know, the one thing, Nate, that always bothers me about the, the, the one criticism people have for LeBron, he's not a killer. He's not a killer on the basketball court. He doesn't have that mentality. And I never played at the level that you did, but I'm like, no, he, he – He's, shit, he's, a, he's different than Jordan. He doesn't ride right. his teammates like Jordan did. He's more of a distributor. Right. But it, if LeBron wants to kill on the court, then he you kills on the court. Like, I, do just, I don't think that's an accurate assessment well, people,
2: of who he is as a player. People never said that about Magic. Like, you know, and Magic wasn't, wasn't the one that was like, I'm going to take this last shot because I'm, I'm the most gifted on the court. Magic was the most gifted on the court majority at the time. Right. But he was like, I see the game differently and I can make other people better. That's why LeBron is always going to be one of my favorites because I grew up loving Magic Johnson. And LeBron is Magic Johnson, but with crazy athleticism. Totally. So, um, so yeah, I agree with you. I think he does have the killer instinct. The killer instinct is also being able to have discernment on when to right. deliver the ball to somebody else and allow them to make the shot.
1: Yeah. And, 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 but that's one of the things that made Kobe so great too, was that he, he did have that, but he was also,
2: he was all, he was all killer instinct though. It was like, I mean, he didn't, he never he turned 100%. it off. Yeah.
1: yeah. All, all the time, a hundred percent of the time. And so that was obviously what made him so great, but he also, he like Kobe had no conscience. Yeah. Like he could shoot 40 times a game and, <laughs> and not feel, I mean, he's like, Dude, I, you're open, but I, I'm gonna make it. I mean i trust myself to make it before you do. And and it's just a different mentality, right? When you're on the basketball court.
2: Yeah, no doubt about it. And and you know what, watching The Last Dance and thinking about how Kobe approached life and and you know, I'm pretty sure when we watch Tom Brady's documentary and we see behind the scenes how competitive he really is, I think that that that, that is something that you know, as fathers, we can talk to our kids about and be like, Look, it's okay to be casual about certain things, but Success rewards those who are addicted to greatness. And if you're addicted to like that like energy, like I feel like whatever you're doing, sports aside, like it'll reward you. You know what I mean?
1: Let me ask you this from a from a father's perspective, then, because I I get so frustrated sometimes with with my kids because there's so many. Listen, we live in Southern California. You know, we're we're three blocks from the ocean. You know, my my son can walk down and go surfing. My daughter can throw a little ball with her friends. Like there's not that that drive in my mind for them to be great at any particular thing. They just want to live. And I think back and we always sound like old heads when we say it, right? But like every day, like it was playing football, you know, with your buddy in the street, like I would toe tap, you know, just inside the curb, keep my feet in bounds. Or I was hooping every day during the summer and it's like pulling teeth to get them out there to do that
2: sometimes yeah. you know and, and, and bickering and barking with your yes! friends getting in fights like we developed that killer instinct early because we were just competitive like that you know i have the luxury of having two kids that are very close in age and i and you know as a father i i, I at moments i pit them against each other because i have to I, right. I can't go out there and beat them up like i have to like force this competitive nature and then when I go coach their teams, these little kids that are spoiled and got every shoe and they never missed a meal and their houses are all big and they haven't dealt with any type of adversity. I tell them, if you haven't like, challenged your friend or you haven't got to the point where you were mad at them while playing, or you guys haven't had a confrontation where you were nose to nose, face to face, talking about the moment that you were just in from an athletic standpoint, from a competitive standpoint, then you're not really his friend. And I remember saying that and it kind of sunk in. They were like, damn. I was like, because your friend's going to be in a situation and because he was never challenged before, he's going to cower. And you guys are both at fault. And you guys are both cowering in those moments. And I was like, and it's not just about sports. It's also about when you become a man and you become married and somebody flirts with your wife. I had this crazy conversation with my boys and it all stemmed from like him being in the game and quite frankly, shutting it down because the kids were older and athletic. And luckily, it was a long ride home. I started talking about sports, ended up talking about life. And I, I kept having those until they understood it. Now that at 16 and 14, it finally sunk in. I just didn't give up on them. That's, I guess that's the best advice I can give. I didn't give up on those conversations. They, they didn't understand it when they were younger. But as they got older, they were like, pops, I feel you. You know what I mean?
1: Dude, it's so funny, man. 16, 14. Your daughter's how old? 10? 10, yeah. Ten, you know, I, I have almost thirteen. My son's almost thirteen. My daughter just turned fourteen, and it's it's amazing, man, to watch. Like the whole parenthood in general. Yeah. Every step, I think, is better than the last one. But now, like, they're, I mean, they're becoming like men and women, and you're having to worry about all the issues. Like, you know, what point are they going to start? You yeah. know, trying alcohol. What point are they going to start having sex? Like, you, like your 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 son are like they're men now, you know, and in it. whether it's in, in the classroom or, you know, on the basketball court or on the football field, whatever that is, it's, um, it's a challenge, man. Like being a father is, I just, I am always, I love hearing stories from other parents because I never know if the way that I'm doing it is the right way. And I don't know if there is a right way. I think there are many right ways.
2: Exactly. And it's just communicating. I'm just communicating so they know when they, whenever they do want to try something, whether it's something they should be doing or they shouldn't, I just want to be a person they can talk to and not afraid to talk to.
1: Yeah. No, I, I feel you, man. Yeah. Hey, I'm going to let you go. We, I mean, we've almost gone two hours. I so appreciate the time, yeah. my friend. You got, you got a big weekend coming up. Hey, see, we... see,
2: now now you can cut this up and, and, and put it in a thousand pieces. And we're going to just, you know, wait, every, every Nate Burleson
1: soundbite is a promotable soundbite. We love that.
2: I appreciate you, man. Appreciate I, you.
1: Always, up. Always continue success. I'll talk to you soon, buddy.
2: All right, brother.